0: Kia ora everybody, today we are bringing you a podcast from the University of Tago Rural Postgraduate um, Programme and today I'm lucky enough to be joined by anaesthetist and pain, special, uh, pain specialist Dr Mike Foss who used to be my classmate back in Dunedin many years ago and Mike works for the Waikato um, District Health Board so thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us today Mike. So firstly, we just want to recognise that pain is a pretty huge topic and there's no way we're going to cover all aspects of its management today. And we, we really want to focus on common issues that are relevant to us practising rurally. So the topics that we hope to cover are some aspects of acute pain management with a particular focus on various options for oral analgesia opiate-induced nausea and vomiting, and if we are going well for time, we'll hope to cover some aspects of managing chronic and neuropathic pain, but I'm sure we can talk Mike into coming back if we don't get through those today. So we'll be aiming for about 30 minutes of discussion here. So firstly, Mike, I thought I would take this kind of from the point of view of, of managing someone in the emergency department. Yep. And, and using the, the kind of pain ladder, if that's still um, relevant to work through that. So I thought if we had the situation of someone presenting acutely to the emergency department, and we won't really focus particularly on what type of pain they're, they're experiencing, kind of you know either something musculoskeletal trauma or you know even someone with abdominal pain. And I guess a, a good place to to begin would be with paracetamol, our most commonly used and simple analgesia. So you know kind of what what the role is of of maybe intravenous paracetamol as opposed to oral, okay. and if there's any advantages over that, and if there's any point in pushing on with, with higher doses of paracetamol.
1: So, yeah, so thank you for all of that in the introduction. See, paracetamol, we're still not really sure exactly how it works, and every year they sort of um, flirt with it either being COX 3 or endocannabinoid or some other sort of thing, but in the end, it is a reasonable simple analgesic, it's worth giving to pretty much everybody because it saves analgesia, higher analgesics if you like so it's opiate sparing and it's synergistic with a number of other things so there's no real steep dose response curve for it though, so some is good but more is not better and IV paracetamol isn't any more effective than oral but there is a bit of a placebo effect in, in giving it in the emergency department sometimes that you're giving a special bottle or something, and, and that shouldn't be overlooked, especially when you're dealing with people with persistent pain. But in general, you, you're not really gaining much from giving IV paracetamol unless they can't take it orally. So we give quite a lot of it in the general surgical ward where people are often feeling a bit nauseous and ill and iliousy, and it. it, it Serves two purposes there, eh? That we spare opiates so their ileus management is improved and, and they can absorb it without having any, any trouble. And big doses of it isn't, doesn't really help you. The dose response curve's quite flat.
0: Yep. And, and you mentioned there that synergistic effect. What, what, do you, what other drugs do you see that effect with?
1: So definitely synergistic effect with anti-inflammatories and with opioids. So the guy that made Maxalgesic was uh, treating a fairly well-trodden path, you know, with mixing the brufen with the paracetamol. So they go together, and again, you get to reduce the sort of exposure to anti-inflammatories that may or may not cause some trouble for you in in some of the older cohorts.
0: Yes, I guess that moves us nicely into non-steroidals. What, what particular types of pain should we expect to be more responsive to non-steroidals?
1: So, in the emergency department, rib fractures are definitely like it reduces the incidence of pneumonia if you give people with a rib fracture anti inflammatory. So, it's part of our rib fracture protocol to just push a bit harder with anti inflammatories where maybe we wouldn't have in an older person. And it definitely helps with all of the sort of visceral pains. So, you know, period pain, internal sort of musculoskeletal pain as well. And it, it, we would probably use more of it in the hospital if the cohort of elective people coming to hospital were in a better state. You know?
0: As in not carrying so many comorbidities sure. and reasons not to. Be.
1: Write to me and tell me about their arthroplasty pathway and how they give everyone massive doses of celecoxib, And I'm a bit like, well, who are you operating on down yep. there? Because the people that we have wouldn't tolerate that.
0: Yep. Is there evidence that some agents are more effective than others when it comes to non-steroidals?
1: So there's five families of non-steroidals. There is a bit of interperson variability. Generally, the, I'm lucky enough to work in an apartment with uh, one of the peoples sort of the world expert on anti-inflammatories, and his take on it is if someone finds that a particular one's helpful for them, you should just use that one. We generally are worrying about, in the hospital, about people's comorbidity burden. So we use a lot of celecoxib because it's got a pretty benign safety profile for what we're doing. And it's twice daily dosing, which reduces the amount of nursing input. But in the sort of weller people, like people having um, caesarean section and the like, we still use diclofenac and ibuprofen, you know.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned like with the paracetamol, there's no point in pushing for higher doses. How about with something like ibuprofen, probably our most commonly reached for drug? Yeah. Push it.
1: So so there is a dose response curve for sure. They don't work on a receptor per se, so they're working on COX-1 and COX-2. So they sort of alter a seesaw of prostaglandins, if you like. So the higher you go, you get more benefit, but you also get more side effects. You know, like the easiest, the one we all learned at med school was aspirin and thromboxane and prostacyclin, altering the the seesaw, if you like, the the balance of prostaglandins to favour your blood being thinner and not clotting in your cardiac circulation, eh? But the same thing happens when you give a massive dose of um, ibuprofen, you then, you know, alter the balance of gastric mucosa and renal blood flow and the like. So there's a sweet spot and it does so, so. If you're going to you, if you're going to give a single dose, not really a problem. So you guys could give a reasonable, you know, a, a stiff dose to someone, provided they're not hypertensive and and septic, and be fine in the hospital. So if you have brought them into the ward, then then we try to treat them a bit like opiates, and we sort of set a, a time course and we keep an eye on things because they're generally you know they're not they're not just sitting at home if they're admitted to the to a, a rural hospital ward, they're likely to be unwell as, as anywhere else. And you just need to manage that risk a bit, because acute kidney injury isn't good for people. It probably affects their long-term outcomes. So an acute kidney injury is fairly common after surgery, but we think it, it's just got another million dollars to look at the relief trial people and see if that, uh, the people that had it an acute kidney injury then go on to develop renal failure later in life. So we've just got to manage that risk a bit more than we did in the past.
0: Yeah, so kind of safe to go for, for a slightly higher dose if you're thinking just a once-off off dose maybe. Are you talking about doses like sort of 600, 800 milligrams of ibuprofen or even...? Yeah, well, I'd
1: just give them the top end of whatever's uh, listed in MIMS for them. I wouldn't necessarily give them a loading dose, but you can get some of those sustained-release preparations which makes sense of the sustained-release ibuprofen or diclofenac. Yeah. Um, or two hundred of celecoxib sort of thing, an uh, yep. adult. Yeah,
0: and you mentioned that sort of the, thinking about those patients who are then admitted to the ward and you know given regular nonsteroidals and you mentioned celecoxib as being safer. Has it got a lower risk of causing acute kidney injury, or or is that sort of an unavoidable yeah, aspect?
1: Injury is a tricky one because it's multifactorial. Uh, it's about the same as the others. It's not in the worst. Uh, cohort so that's why we like it. It's mainly because it doesn't cause as much precipitate as much heart failure and its cardiovascular profiles a little bit better and its, its uh, gastrointestinal disturbance profiles a bit better but they can all cause renal impairment if you're not careful.
0: So I think that's something that's often forgotten that relationship between non-steroidals and heart failure. Could you just give us a reminder?
1: And so again they just change you how uh, your kidney manages salt and water so the safer ones are Sally Coxib, and I think naproxen is what they say in BPAC. They get quite, if you're going to have one, that would be the end of it. So it's more the Cox one that seems to affect things. Um, but that signal's wobbled a bit, eh? Because for a while, BPAC was saying use ibuprofen, but that you know may not necessarily be the safest thing for heart failure patients. You, you've got to take them as an entirety, because a lot of them are already on Furosemide and, and an ACE inhibitor, and, and often they've got a diuretic hidden in the ACE inhibitor now as well. And those guys are at risk of that triple whammy effect, where their kidney really can't regulate flow at all.
0: Absolutely. And as far as the route that they get the the drugs, you know, for those outside of the situation where people are not able to take oral meds. Yep. Are you going to get therapeutic gain from giving a, a non-steroidal IV if you've got someone sore in the in the department?
1: So we give lots of IV anti-inflammatories for people that can't absorb things, but we generally wait until they're taking things orally um, before getting too carried away in the post-op cohort. We don't give a lot of rectal anti-inflammatory it does work but in New Zealand because it's not part of our culture you're generally told that you should take informed consent for body lollies essentially you're like you're supposed to ask people Uh, whereas in Europe they would give it rectally all the time it does work rectally there sometimes it might even work more depending on how far up they put it because you miss the first pass metabolism but we we do use a lot of IV mainly for day case because we're trying to get as many um receptors covered so we can send them home. That's probably applies to you guys as well. If they can't take things by mouth, I can't. I guess if they're acutely unwell, you're probably not going to give them to them in the emergency department. So you have less of a requirement. But we just use paracoxib. There's not many options yeah. in New Zealand for IV anti yeah. inflammatory.
0: So, Mike, we've we've given our patient paracetamol and um, loaded them up with some non-steroidal, and they're still sore and you know often what we're reaching for is is coding and I, I just wondered if you wanted to comment on the role of codeine you know in that acute setting and and for discharging people from the emergency department what what role you think it has or doesn't have
1: so the faculty of pain medicine basically trying to run codeine off the planet except for when it's useful like when people have got a lot of diarrhea with a stoma because essentially just giving people morphine and it was such a problem in Australia with the sort of creep of codeine and codeine addiction that they actually made buprenorphine available to general practitioners in rural, uh, rural and remote practices. So people were, they had mesindole, which was codeine, paracetamol and a stimulant and a whole lot of those sort of Nurofen Plus type things. And people ended up poisoned on uh, either paracetamol from the sort of Panadine Plus or anti-inflammatories from the Nurofen Plus or a bit of both from taking Macindol. So the general um, thing is that they're now script only and we're trying to control that risk just the same as we would with morphine. Your body just um, turns it into morphine if you're going to use it anyway. So we don't, we don't send anyone home on it if we can. Admittedly, that's elective and acute surgical cohort. I mean, I guess the nice thing about it from your point of view is you don't have to write a control drug script which is helpful in a busy emergency department so but we just don't use much of it at all we just think it's a sort of a dying out kind of drug:
0: yeah I reckon that that's one of the main reasons we reach for it that sort of ease but but I think just being conscious that we pretty much are prescribing people morphine even though we feel like we're doing something yeah slightly less um, sometimes you're
1: not you're just making them constipated and they're not getting any yep. most of the time they get morphine.
0: So then, you know, our other, the other drug that we some of us feel a little bit anxious about using is, is tramadol. Just wanted to do if you could just comment, just remind us how tramadol works, some of its disadvantages and side effects, and, and when, you, when you need to be careful when prescribing it.
1: Sure. So, I mean, tramadol is a, a fascinating drug. It's a useful drug if it works for people. Unfortunately, some of its, its biggest side effects probably nausea and vomiting. And that's probably serotonergic and opiate in in nature. So some people won't take it at all, and there's a lot of strong opinions about whether you should use tramadol or not. Mainly based on people's um, individual experience. So people call it spewadol and the like. But it offers it offers such unique sort of advantages that they've actually reverse engineered it. And tapentadol was available around the rest of the world except for New Zealand. It's basically tramadol that was taken and engineered to take out all the bad things and leave all the good things. So that sort of tells you where people are headed with it, and it's not available to us at this point. But tramadol, the biggest problem is that its pharmacology is quite complicated. It's got a whole lot of enantiomers. it's got active metabolites, it's a partial opiate agonist. It um, works to increase the amount of serotonin and noradrenaline in your brain. And that's all dependent on whether your liver um, can metabolize the parent molecule into the metabolite. So it's a little bit tricky to know what it's going to do to someone. But if it works for people, we should use it. We generally avoid it, obviously, in epileptics, because it's, uh, if they metabolize, it can uh, reduce their seizure threshold. And we don't use it much in the elderly, because it's a little bit unpredictable what that serotonin effect is going to do to them. Having said that, if an an older patient comes into the hospital and they've used Tramadol successfully in the past, we will carry on with it, but we tend not to give it to them in the post-operative period just because of of that sort of confusion that happens. Uh, People worry about the serotonin syndrome with Tramadol. Uh, We still give it to all sorts of people that are on serotonergic medicines, I mean most anaesthetic. Drugs have some sort of serotonergic effect. Like fentanyl's quite serotonergic, and on Dan's Tron that we give out every day, so we are a little bit more relaxed about it than perhaps elsewhere. But I have certainly seen serotonin syndrome a number of times, sometimes from a single dose of tramadol. So it's a little bit idiosyncratic the reaction, but it's manageable. I. Eh? It's. I mean, you. You're probably better to try tramadol than to give people start doling out lots of morphine. It's not as likeable in prison situations or with people that abuse drugs, so that's a helpful thing if you're trying to reduce drug-seeking behaviour in your department, you know, so trying a trial of tramadol is not necessarily a bad thing.
0: Yep, so it's kind of one of those drugs that's good when it's good, it's not when it's not, and and you can be more confident if people have had a good experience in, in the past. Sure. Yep, yep. So then I guess that moves on if we're still thinking about kind of our options for for oral analgesia. Obviously, we can give tramadol oral or IV. But, you know, if we're just trying to stick with our orals, thinking about getting our patient home, there's been a lot of discussion and changes in prescribing around oxycodone. Just wondering if you could sort of update us on the thinking around oxycodone, perhaps as a whether we should still be trying to avoid it and stick with morphine or whether there's sort of been a a relaxation.
1: That's quite a long story, eh? So, no molecules inherently evil. The Purdue pharmaceuticals and the Sattler family went out of their way to create um, a market for with oxycodone or oxycontin controlled release. And it was a an eight-hour drug marketed as a 12-hour drug. So people that were on it for persistent pain were in withdrawal for about eight hours of the day. And that used to that tends to drive a dose increment because they're sore, eh? They go oh, on 20 milligrams a day and i uh, still feel like it's not working can i have some more and that created a massive market for it they got um, taken to court they were fined 700 million dollars quite a few years ago now the market for oxycodone in the states was in the billions so it was really just a slap on the hand we felt a little bit out of that out here when me and you were house surgeons, you know, the reps were coming round and telling us to and we've got that under control again now, I think. So we're not using as much controlled release for anything. On its own, the molecule itself is a is a equipotent, equi to morphine. It's probably a little bit better for visceral pain, but it does tend to make people slightly more constipated than morphine. But it's got a safer pharmacological picture in the elderly. It doesn't accumulate so much in renal failure and the like. So we tend to use morphine as the first line, but we're not afraid of using oxycontin. And we use quite a bit of it in PCAs because of the cohort of people that we've got coming through the hospital. They're all sort of 70 and got sort of chronic multi-organ failure fentanyl all the phenylperperidines all those semi-synthetic synthetic synthetic and semi-synthetic ones are all metabolized by the liver in the cytochrome system so morphine isn't it's it's processed differently in the liver to morphine 6 glucuronidide so it's got a separate pathway and sometimes in the elderly if they're taken a lot of phenytoin or phenobarbitone, carbamazepine and the like, they'll just metabolise oxycodone and fentanyl like it's water. So there is, you know, you do have to be aware that uh, things that induce the liver or for that matter, maybe not so much in rural hospital medicine, but in, in some of the hospitals when they're giving like antifungals, that will uh, put a stop to them metabolising it and they'll accumulate it. So, so morphine's our first line for most things. But we're not afraid to use an oxycodone. It is more likeable, so people are more likely to abuse it. But again, it's a prescription for discharge opiates is a a sort of a contract with the patient, and there has to be some follow-up. You know, if you're just doling out scripts to people, which I'm sure you're not, uh, and not not arranging some sort of follow-up, that will definitely end in tears, because they'll just get to know that, you know, that particular rural hospital doctor a bit of a soft touch, and I'll come and and you know at a funny time, usually sort of four o'clock on a Friday when the departments turn into custard, and you know people are quite clever, the drug seeking ones. So
0: yeah, so you know it, it it has a role. We just need to use it it sensibly, and it's probably second line to morphine. And I guess that's a that's a um, good bit of information to know that the that the controlled release is only an eight hour preparation, not yeah. Not right through that twelve-hour period.
1: Controlled release. We don't. The College of Aneth just said, look, we're not really allowed to use it at all for yep. acute pain. We still do if they've if they've got a persistent pain state. So they've come to your hospital. They're mangled in a car crash. We get them over. We start um, fixing them up, and you know their oral route's available, and and so they look like they need some more opiates. So we give them some in that case. But we're not giving people empiric oxycodone, oxycontin TENS for their hip and knee now.
0: Yeah, I think that was certainly the prescribing pattern when I was a a junior doctor. So, I I mean, you've touched on the difference between morphine and fentanyl. What what are the key things that you think we need to understand about the difference between fentanyl and morphine and perhaps when each of them might have their place in the acute setting?
1: So fentanyl's, um, the onset's a lot quicker, and the offset's a lot more predictable with a single dose because it mainly ends up in people's fat. So, you know, it's a great thing for for rescuing something. They come in and they're screaming the house down and you're not too sure that you've got to know them uh, as yet. And you think, of, well, I just need to get some control. You know, 25 to 50 mics of fentanyl will let you know where things are going. It'll work pretty quickly. And equally, it'll go away because it'll just, it'll just uh, get dispersed into their adipose tissue and they'll metabolize some of it morphine takes a bit longer to work it's about 15 minutes and then every year they change their mind but probably morphine 6 glucuronidide is the more potent part of morphine so the metabolite's more important in analgesia and that takes a lot longer so there's a biphasic effect to the analgesia so it's better for a baseline or a background eh so yeah, so fentanyl up front is quite quick and titratable, lets you know where you're going and buys you some time and, you know, can get you out of trouble if, if things go wrong. Do you know what I mean? If, if it's an evolving situation. Uh, morphine's a bit more, a bit slower, a bit steadier though, eh? So that doesn't sort of vanish on you. You know, it's better if, you know, if you've decided that they need to be transported or they need to go to the ward and come in. Well, that makes sure that they've got some analgesia on board when they're getting moved around.
0: I was just wondering, you know, that's kind of like we've worked through those stages of the pain ladder. Are there any other aspects to kind of acute pain management that you want to comment on or, you know, situations where, where you get asked for help or, or retrospectively you think, think things might have been done a bit better or differently?
1: Sure. So single-agent monotherapy for pain unwork. work, that's what the Americans tried with opiate. You know, they just gave bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and bigger, bigger dose, and all they showed really was harm. They've never shown... A benefit. So I think we try and do maximodal or multimodal depending on. And we, in an acute pain setting, we're really not looking for um, perfection. You know, perfect is the enemy of good. People will have some pain, you know, if they've had an injury or an operation, that's the same for you guys as well. So you're not aiming, I mean, if you're aiming for no pain, that's essentially general anesthesia, eh? and it comes with all the, the risks of general anesthesia. So you're trying to get the most comfort, but you're trying to provide the fastest functional recovery with the least side effects. So sometimes you do have to um, throw the net a bit more widely. And in terms of pharmaceuticals, we think about those five parts of your pain system. So we definitely use the simple analgesics. We think about opioids if we have to but we're quite happy to use local anesthetic. We're quite happy to use to block the glutamate pathway with ketamine or nitrous and and the like. And we think about it adjusting their descending inhibitory pathways with things like clonidine and tramadol. So it's a toolkit of things that we use uh, when we're seeing someone and we're really worried mostly about function. So if people can sort of and function may also be distress as well. You know, like if they're really distressed and you get them to calm down a bit so you can take a history, that's that's a, a, a functional outcome that we can all appreciate because then we know where we're going to send them, especially if you're stuck in the middle of nowhere and you're really wondering whether you need the helicopter versus the ambulance versus sending them home. But But that's... So acute pain management is partly pharmaceuticals and partly non-pharmaceuticals. And in the end, the context is everything when you're assessing someone. I'm sort of going off t- target here a bit. But if they're a sort of, the example I give is, you know, if they're a 30-year-old marathon runner who breaks their leg versus sort of the, the same patient who's, you know, a recurrent admission to your unit with chronic pain and sort of takes medicines willy-nilly and never goes to any of their clinic appointments, it's going to be a completely different experience for you and the patient because some people are just inherently quite psychologically robust when it comes to pain and some people aren't and that'll determine things. So we know that people with persistent pain that present to emergency departments uh, they're quite a big part of everyone's practice uh, you know 10% or 20% in the America but they use a disproportionate amount of resources because one they're more distressed so they stay for longer because they're more distressed, no one really knows what to do with them, so they get more investigations. They're much more likely to have a, a scan or to have an exploratory laparoscopy for that matter. But, you know, they, you sometimes feel like some of our patients are pretty much glow in the dark. They've had that many abdominal x-rays and CTs and things. But once you're trying to decide if they've got a pain driver or not, And sometimes that can be a bit hard to disentangle because sometimes it's a flare of the chronic pain. Then you can make a a more rational plan, eh? The pain ladder itself is a little bit outdated now because it's a bit top-heavy with opioid. So as you go up the ladder, it kind of falls over because we know that single-agent monotherapy is not good for people. So we try and start some of those weird, wonderful medications a bit earlier in the piece. And you can do that in the emergency department. You know, magnesium infusions, lignocaine infusions and the like have all been used around the world now in emergency departments for that yeah. reason.
0: I think, you know, people, a lot of people would feel like they were getting outside of their, their comfort zone with that sort of thing. But certainly one of the things you mentioned was the use of, of ketamine. And I think, I think if you wouldn't mind just commenting on how we prescribe that, say when we're augmenting opiate use, like sort of the, the practicalities of it, and then I might just come back to a little aspect of that, touch on the chronic pain again.
1: Sure, so ketamine's quite a useful drug, eh? We use heaps of it, because we don't believe in signal agent monotherapy anymore, so when people's dose is getting up there, so the other day I saw a guy who had a trauma, and he, he was a youngish bloke, he'd used about 160 milligrams of oxycodone in 24 hours, Now we know that um, on average people use about 100 milligrams minus their age in 24 hours as a ballpark kind of figure. So once you've got to double that, you're sort of going, well, there's probably not much point going any higher. We might rotate as opioid, but most of the time now we would add in ketamine or lignocaine or both, and the reason we add in ketamine is that we're really starting to attenuate some of the changes that happen in your spinal cord. So it has a long-term effect, and it also has an effective short-term analgesic. We know that it's quite dysphoric, and the dose that you get dysphoria is higher than the analgesic one. People in the ambulance tend to go a bit nuts and, and give them like a little mini GA, but we tend to keep the dose under 10 milligrams an hour Because we know that that 10 milligrams an hour in the average 80 kilo person is about 100 nanograms per mil, and that's in that sweet spot of analgesia versus um, seeing purple elephants and generally getting the 1,000 yard stare on and the like. So we don't tend to give them boluses unopposed. So we either give them as a short infusion or we give them to them when they're asleep. If we're going to give them a bolus, and there's some good emergency department literature about just putting the ketamine in a little hundred mil bag and just letting it run, in over half an hour, and it significantly reduces the sort of the dysphoric, and it sometimes people quite like that effect, so the you know the sort of habit-forming effect of it, so it's worth not giving boluses unless you're going to pull on someone's arm, you know, like, and then you're given it a pose, don't you? So you're giving midazolam or propofol or whatever you feel comfortable with. Magnesium is a cofactor, so the the ketamine's an unusual drug. It's a non-competitive antagonist of the NMDA receptor, so it binds um, to a site uh, away from the channel and induces a conformational change. So a little bit goes a long way. So it lasts a long time because it's not just binding to the receptor and falling on and off. And the magnesium is a, a plug is in that is in that calcium channel, so it helps it helps ketamine's effect to be potentiated. So, you know, 50 milligrams um, per kilogram of magnesium can be quite helpful to go with ketamine. And we use that a lot in recovery just to get people through pain crises if they haven't one. The problem is when you use a lot of ketamine in emergency departments, people start coming back and wanting more of it, eh? And we've got that problem as well with some of our um, vulnerable patient cohort that, you know, they tend to be more of the chemical coper end of things, they're not really that interested in non-pharmacological things or self-management, they just want pharmaceuticals, and so you can get rid of opioid, but you can just then end up with a whole lot of people coming in and requesting ketamine, so you do
0: it. Have- so if we're using that, that, that multi-modal kind of approach, it's it's another another thing in our toolbox, but not to be reached for every single time. And Mike, you mentioned that, you know, putting it in a 100 mils, running in over an hour, for your average size, you know, 75 kg person without much else wrong with them, what sort of doses would you put in, be putting in that 100 so ml bag to avoid that?
1: like 10 or 20. It's yep. yep. predictable that they'll get to 100 nanograms per ml. Yep. And that's about where the um, analgesic part starts to flirt with the, the psychotrophic part. Yep. If we were doing a burn stressing on the ward, then we give a much bigger dose because we're looking for sedation. Mm, you know? mm. And that would be the same with you guys pulling on people's broken limbs and the like, you know, setting fractures. You're actually aiming for a, a degree of anesthesia. And certainly, you know, someone's had a big burn, they can have as much ketamine as they like sort of thing because it seems to work quite well for them. We'd give up to 200 milligrams in an hour, but it's always with some midazolam or propofol. But that's a different kettle of fish, you're sort of more talking about someone that's just fronted up and, and you're not too sure where things are going. You can always give more, you just can't take it back. Naloxone probably reverses a little bit of the ketamine sort of effect. And we, in general, with a sort of fairly controlled pattern of it, touch would haven't had too much trouble giving ketamine on the ward.
0: So, Mike, I mean, you, you touched on sort of shifting direction a little bit, if you're comfortable to keep yeah. going. You know, the, the, the chronic pain patients, I guess they all make us feel pretty uncomfortable with our management and I guess you mentioned that we're disentangling the, the acute problem but I was wondering if you know from your experience obviously you deal with these patients a lot if there's kind of some practical advice you could give us for our encounters as clinicians with people with chronic pain that can you know aim to improve the outcome for for the individual and their experience with the health system.
1: Sure so the basic part of it is that you should be kind to people but not too kind so we talk about the velvet glove and the steel fist so you know you're going to entertain whatever they've got to tell you but you're not just going to dole out a whole lot of morphine scripts or a whole lot of pharmaceuticals just because they've um, fronted up to the emergency department. The flag model for assessing them is quite helpful so you're really looking for red flags so you know they've got a fracture, a cancer, a mass, they've got you know an ischemic leg or something like that And you've got to work through that every time, which can be quite taxing. As I said, they soak up a lot of time in an emergency department. And then we think about the orange flags where things would probably be better managed by a psychiatrist. So, you know, they've got a substance misuse disorder. They've got a dual diagnosis of having pain as well as, you know, being a pretty profound borderline personality disorder or something and those things. And they require some input from mental health. But most of the time, people have got an underlying psychological vulnerability to pain. And we're kind to them because a lot of those people have had a lot of trauma in their life. You know, sort of a little bit depressing at pain MDT because most, not, not all, but a significant hunk of them will can, will qualify for an ACC-sensitive claim psychologist. So someone in their life has abused them uh, mentally, sexually, physically in the past. And the more horrendous things you have in your childhood, the more likely you are to end up having pain as a presenting symptom. Eh? That's not to say that we should manage them all with pharmaceuticals, you know like we really it is a team sport, so we're not asking the rural hospital doctor to fix someone's pain problem overnight because it's not probably going to happen, but we're also asking them not to try and uh, fob them off or or to make things worse. I guess, you know, most of the time there isn't a surgical solution, so people say, Oh that doctor in E D, he said I should have another operation. Well that's statistically unlikely. You know, unless there was a red flag where you go, holy shit, you know, like their um, legs gone purple and I think there's a clot or something. For the most part, you know, no operation or every operation's got potential making a pain problem a lot worse. We do see a lot of centrally sensitised people, and, and like everyone that's in specialty medicine, you know, we wander around all day seeing central sensitization, just like the heart failure doctors run around seeing heart failure everywhere. But that just presents as a twitchy nervous system, so their pain threshold's lower, their response to pain's higher, and they have a widening of their receptive field. So they'll have, and it should localise to somewhere, will be more diffuse, and they'll seem a lot more distressed than you will. And it's probably visceral pain that bothers ED and rural health medicine the most because it's kind of harder to get your head around when you're worried that there's some sort of abdominal catastrophe going on. They're definitely more sensitive to stretch. So, you know, if they've got a distended abdomen or they're constipated for that matter, they will respond quite differently to you and I. And as they have pain for a long time, the wiring in your abdominal or in your in your, in your your viscera is quite different to the wiring in your hands. And all those little C fibres are quite economically used. So if you've got a fibre wired up to some endometriosis or to part of your uterus, it'll probably also wire up a bit of your bladder and a bit of your bowel. So if you've got a UTI, you're constipated, or you've got diarrhea and vomiting, that will also precip- precipitate your pelvic pain or your abdominal pain, which makes it really hard for you to try and disentangle, away. Eh? But being kind to them, validating them. If they've got pain, there's no point telling them, I don't believe you've got pain, you know, go home. That's never been shown to work. But you may not be able to do anything for them on the day, and that's the hard part for doctors, because you always want to help someone. But sometimes... Um, not giving the medicines the best thing for them, eh?
0: So I guess it's that thing, like you mentioned at the very start, that often it's an investment of time on our behalf, and probably, you know, it's one of the other messages I'm getting from you, along with kindness, it's probably a degree of honesty as well, like and being upfront about the the limits of what intervention is actually going
1: to sure
0: going to do. When you talk about that that sensitisation, what's what's the evidence around what's effective for that? for reducing that?
1: Yep, sure. So so you see it all over the place. So the classic sort of things is, you know, a history of fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue, burning mouth syndrome, TMJ dysfunction, chronic daily headache. People that have a whole big list of medicines that are allergies that aren't allergies, you know, multiple chemical sensitivities. They're all signs, irritable bladder, irritable bowel. All signs that their response to normal stimuli is augmented. And uh, we can turn that down with some stuff that we can do in clinic. So generally there's a a, multidisciplinary team that works on them. The basic things are things, uh, obviously like I said, validation. So we accept that they've got a problem and we're trying to work through it. And then we generally work through all of the pain modifiers. So we look at sleep and sleep hygiene. We look at what other stressors are going on in their life. We work on things like mindfulness um, and stress management. And really, in the end, if you took a step back and said, what are we doing? We try and look for something that resonates with them. And we try and build them a, a toolkit that they can use themselves. And some people are more amenable to that than others. And some people will actually do all right for the most part using those tools, but every now and then they just have a flare that they can't cope with. And they front up to hospital in a, in a basically in a steaming heap. The people that are on a lot of narcotic get into more trouble because you make your own opioid, so your body sees its an endogenous, exogenous opioid as self, And there's a whole lot of quite interesting stuff that happens to your nervous system, but none of it's particularly good for you. And so they get quite centrally sensitized, and their ne- nervous systems essentially on fire uh, because they've had so much opioid. And so they're particularly hard to look after, and it's got worse since we started doling out opioid for chronic non-cancer pain, because now they feel quite entitled that you know they should come in and, and have a whole lot of uh, extra therapy because someone's prescribing them, and they, you know there's no way that they're going to come off them. So we spend a lot of our time in the pain clinic weaning people's opioid or trying to.
0: So I guess that's where we can contribute, that that really trying not to get into that pattern of prescribing so that we don't end up with people who are on long-term opiates. Because you're saying that basically there's just no benefit for those non-cancer pains. You're not actually doing your patients any favours.
1: There'll be some people that are on on it long term that have sort of accumulated that over the years and we take a harm minimisation approach to them. You're probably not doing them any harm to give them some opioid in the ED because they're taking it every day like oxygen. It's more the the new patients. I think I sent you a slide, but basically people on a lot of uh, opioid with a lot of persistent pain, they end up in this quite a sad situation where negative situations induce this kind of hyper reactivity and it's all quite exciting and positive things are blunted so they have this sort of awful life where kicking off in the ED and having a big drama and you know struggling to get into the ward and is all exciting is not the right word but there's some sort of perverse incentive to that whereas sort of sitting at home you know quietly and, and getting on with life doesn't, doesn't seem to work. And they've measured some various sort of weird and wonderful factors in your brain, but no one's really come up with a strategy to, you know, there's no pill or anything that can cure that. And it requires them to be involved in some pain therapy for a little while, which is pretty hard to do here, even in a, in a centre like ours, because we don't really have any resource.
0: And I guess that you know that's often a, a barrier as, for us as people's geographical geographical isolation and even getting to a pain clinic and getting there regularly for their other appointments but I think it's important for us to all share the at least the philosophy of pain clinics and know what's going on and, and see the value if we can get people into them yep Mike we've covered heaps of material today. <laughs> I think you've done really well and I guess probably the the, the things I'll carry away from that is that I really like that idea of that that multimodal approach to pain management rather than just thinking about that ladder and just ending up on a on a single agent and and with regards to our chronic pain patients just that it is hard work it's complex and I guess as Jacinda would say kindness is key and and I think that you've you've described that really well and that the complexity of that situation any final words you'd like to to finish with
1: we need to do a better job, I think, for people with persistent pain, uh, be it be sort of pelvic pain in women and, and, or back pain and, and all the like. And I don't think that our health system is actually very well built for that. So we just need people to be interested and be involved. There are some resources. The Faculty of Pain Medicine has got better pain management free at the moment, so you can log on and you have to register. But at the, I've sent you the website. And there's about six modules that you can do that you'll get credits to from from your college if you're interested in doing a bit more. And I think moving forward, we will end up hopefully having more non-pharmacological things available to practitioners such as yourself that you can send someone to, you know, like group therapy or even Tai Chi classes and all the rest of it. We just don't do that sort of stuff. In New Zealand we just want to do chop chop we don't want to do lots of operations and banging and crashing and and uh, we've just completely neglected that that other side of medicine that non-pharmacological and giving people self-management techniques.
0: Excellent messages that I, I fully agree and endorse some. Um, I, I will just let people listeners know that Mike's provided some slides that we'll make available to either watch alongside or afterwards as a resource and we'll put in the links for the, what you mentioned there, yeah, Mike. For those it's other
1: still free for a few more, you know, six months or something. It's pretty reasonable little course. You don't have to. I mean, it's be entirely vomit, uh, voluntary, but
0: yep. yeah, yeah. No, and that's brilliant, Mike. Hey, all the best, and we really thank you for your time.
1: No, worries. Nice to talk.